Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. I'm still alive. No, I have not died. I have not been uh, kidnapped by the CRTC as a measure of compliance with Bill C-11 and sent off to a re-education gulag, at least not yet. I was actually away for the last couple of weeks, and normally I try not to disappear without announcing it. Not that anyone cares when I leave, but just in general. I'm like a big fan of the Irish goodbye at parties where you just like sneak out the door. But I, because the last show before I went away was was pre-recorded earlier in the week. I forgot to just say at the end of it, oh, by the way, I'm going to be off for two weeks. So I, I was away, and I'll tell you where in a second. But then I came back and just had like this deluge of emails uh, wondering where I was and if I had been vaporized or otherwise dispensed with. No, I was actually aboard the MS Oosterdam, which is a Holland America cruise ship along the Adriatic Sea for the Mark Stein cruise. I, I've known Mark for many, many years and had the great privilege of not just uh, being a speaker on his most recent cruise, but actually being the MC and uh, near the end of it, the guest host and had a, a grand old Time. I actually met some of the uh, viewers of this very program who were passengers on the vessel. Also did a little bit of musical performing, oddly enough. I was singing with Michelle Bachman. I was singing with Tal Bachman. No relation, uh, but hopefully no video footage from those will ever see the light of day. You just have to come on the next cruise and get the show in person. But I'm back now, and lots of stuff has happened in my absence that we'll try to unpack as the week goes on, from the expansion of the government's control of the internet through Bill C-18, and also this latest standoff, which we talked about a few weeks ago and seems to have reached a bit of a new boiling point here, between Big Trans, the uh, gender ideology group that is really aggressively pursuing this overhaul of what kids are taught in schools and how parents are to interact with schools on one side and on the other side, religious Canadians, specifically of the Muslim faith. Now, we know that the modern left doesn't really hold religious people in such high esteem. But if you look at the diversity bingo cards, uh, Muslims have always been in a bit of a special category here. No one will criticize an imam for being against gay marriage the way they will criticize some evangelical pastor. That's just the rules of the left today. But there has been an exception made now that Muslim Canadians, by and large, are in a lot of cases speaking up against what their kids are being taught in schools. This came up at the beginning of Pride Month when you had all of a sudden some Muslim families at schools in Edmonton and London, Ontario and elsewhere that were saying, ah, you know, maybe I'm not too keen on the trans flag being flown at this school or maybe I'm not too keen on all the stuff that's in the school library. These are concerns that a number of Canadians have, even non-religious Canadians, certainly non-Muslim Canadians. But when shared by the Muslim community, it put people in a bit of a tricky spot because on one hand, we've been told we need to bend over backwards to culturally accommodate various different groups in Canada. But on the other hand, well, we also have to stand up for sexual and gender minorities. So which side do we pick? Well, Justin Trudeau, the left, the media, uh, they said that Muslims are yesterday's news. No longer do we care about diversity in that sense. No longer do we care about their views. But it was a tricky needle to thread. 
So how did Trudeau do it? Well, he had to come around and go to the old talking points that he loves, which is blaming the right, blaming the far-right forces, blaming American conservatives for Muslims in Canada not loving the fact that uh, maybe their kid could transition genders in school and they'd never know about it. It's no longer the fault of the Muslim. It's the Muslims being co-opted by American far-right forces. This this has played into a few uncomfortable discussions for Trudeau and company, and also we've seen some t-shirt battles come about here. Now, look, here's the thing. When you're a politician, you're going to get people coming up to you all day long, every day, saying, I want a picture with you. And I don't think you're reading the t-shirts of everyone that comes up. Now, ideally, a good staffer is going to scan the t-shirts of everyone in line and say, oh, hang on, we can't let that person get within arm's reach of Pierre Polyev or Danielle Smith or Pierre Trudeau, uh, just because they know that the media is going to make a huge stink of this. But this is what happens every now and then. Pierre Polyev gets a photo taken at the Calgary Stampede with this guy here who's wearing a t-shirt uh, that some people have said is offensive and then the media pounces on him. It's I can't, I can't read the exact wording, but it's basically like a, a straight pride t-shirt to some extent. And uh, Danielle Smith also got suckered into this as well. We have a photo of Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, also uh, being snapped, I believe... In her case, it was at the Calgary Stampede as well. And in the picture that she got snagged, oh, yeah, there we go. Same shirt. Now, funnily enough, thank a, thank a straight person for your existence is what the shirt says. So uh, take from that what you will. Uh, but both of these people were then maligned in the media, as is the common response to stuff like this. Uh, and the Zapruder-like analysis of the photo, trying to figure out every angle of it. Was there a second t-shirt? We'll never know. Uh, Global News ran this piece. What message does the Danielle Smith straight pride photo send to Albertans? I suspect the message is that people just walk up to Danielle Smith and get photos taken with her from time to time. And this one was great uh, about uh, Pierre Polyev. Mums the word as Polyev Calgary MP stays silent over hate t-shirt photos. Now, the reason I bring this one up is a little bit uh, of a curious diversion because it's not the straight pride photo that is the hate t-shirt, but a different photo of a conservative member of parliament, Jasraj Singh Hallen, who was photographed with a few Muslim chaps in Alberta. But let's take a look at this offensive hate t-shirt that Global News has decided to identify. Leave our kids alone. Oh, there's a Canadian flag on the t-shirt. Maybe that's why it is a hate t-shirt in the eyes of Global News. So these are the shirts that Global News, without describing, says are hate t-shirts. Now, this is a global headline on an otherwise reasonable enough Canadian press story. But a few Muslim folks say, leave our kids alone, and this is a hate t-shirt. Maybe it was actually Ann Coulter and Mark Stein that just, like, forced those poor, hapless Muslim guys into 
into those shirts because after all, as Justin Trudeau says, it is the American right that's responsible for Muslim Canadians speaking up and raising issues with what their kids are being taught in schools. Now, I said a few weeks ago that, uh, yes, it's all well and good when Muslims and evangelicals and I think just in general, most parents can all be on the same side of an issue. I don't know what these folks believe about any number of other things. So I, I don't believe that this alliance will necessarily extend to other political issues, but I do believe that it has revealed in the liberal narrative on diversity issues a bit of a fault line, which is that they only love diversity when they don't have to reckon with ideological diversity. Once we have people thinking differently, well, that is not the type of diversity that we hold up as being Canadians' strength or Canada's strength. I want to talk about this and some other issues on the parental choice front with Alyssa Globe, who is the co-founder of Right Now and joins me on the line. Alyssa, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Glad you weren't vaporized. <laughs> well, we'll see how uh, how things go by the end of the show here. Now, just for context here, right now is a, a very effective pro-life political group. And I, I know often the pro-life cause or social conservatism is viewed as being, I, I think in some cases, a, a very Catholic uh, thing, uh, certainly a Christian thing, but but that's not really in, uh, true in, in a meaningful way. If you look at the landscape of Canadians, a lot of the values that you talk about are shared by virtual every religious group on the face of the earth except for the united church yeah and i mean we just on our podcast this week interviewed a transgendered canadian commentator named julia malott who's also speaking out about this so even people within the lgbt community are talking about not targeting children with gender ideology so it's not just a religious issue it's not just a muslim issue or a christian issue it affects Canadians of all different walks of life across party lines and polls show this as well as people who are speaking out about it. Yeah, and I, I think in this particular case, we have a lot of people people that have been pushed uh, to something that was more gradual at first. I mean, that famous audio clip from an Edmonton school that mm -hmm. came out uh, where the teacher is chastising the Muslim students for not going along with the pride stuff because everyone else had to go along with the Ramadan stuff mm -hmm. is basically her uh, argument. And the catchphrase of that, it's not a joke, Mansoor, is one that, that rings true. And you see in New Brunswick here how a leader who I would say has not been particularly useful on a lot of other issues, certainly not through COVID, uh, Blaine Higgs, ended up becoming a very strong leader on this. And even in the face of massive criticism, including from within his own party, has held the line on parental rights. Yeah, I think Canadian politicians, specifically in the Conservative Party, whether it's provincial or federal, have to look at what Blaine Higgs is doing and emulate that if they want to actually connect and invigorate their voting base. Because not only is he taking a stand on an issue that a lot of Canadians care about, specifically, uh, you know, in the Conservative Party, but like I said, across all party lines, but he's also not backing down. He is getting absolutely eviscerated in the mainstream media and by the opposition, but that is not, he's not backing down whatsoever. And when polls come out about this issue in New Brunswick about parental consent, if your child wants to socially transition in schools, uh, the majority of Canadians are on side with Higgs, the overwhelming majority of Canadians. I think it was only 18% that are actually on the opposition. And then the majority of people who live in Atlantic Canada are also on side with Blaine Higgs. So that's why when the opposition says, oh, we should have a leadership review or threaten an election, they actually don't want that because they know they're going to lose.
Yeah, and I mean, I spoke about the New Brunswick stuff a, a few weeks back, and, and what's shocking if you look at it is that it actually is a very modest bill. I, I mean, it's yeah. not even, a, I mean, I would say it could have gone a lot further and, and still be on side with where a lot of Canadians are, but mm -hmm. it, it doesn't do what the critics accuse it of doing. It, it doesn't out anyone to their parents. In fact, it, it is not uh, empowering schools to reach out to parents without consent in general. It's just saying that if a child wants to uh, go through this transition, a child under the age of 16, I think it is, mm -hmm. they need a parent to consent to that. So it's not uh, a, a road of communication towards parents here. And I think that, you know, what, what's shocking to me about this is that the core argument for people that support the criticism against Blaine Higgs, for people that support the denunciation of, of Muslim families and other families, is really that schools should be keeping secrets from parents. I mean, that that's effectively the argument here. And, I, and I've never heard anyone come out and refute that. Yeah, I mean, it's not a very good argument when when your whole talking point is that parents are the enemy. And mm -hmm. when we've tried to separate parents from their children in the past, it hasn't worked out too well. I think we should learn those lessons throughout Canadian history. So why are we trying to do it with this issue? It's just nonsensical. It hasn't worked out. And parents, you know, Canadians are parents. A lot of Canadians are parents. They are not the enemy. Parents know what's best for their children, not teachers. And, you know, what they're trying to do is separate those uh, children from their parents so that if parents do try to intervene, well, then the teachers or the schools or most likely the government is their savior. And that's ultimately what they want to be seen as. So um, I think this is, a, you know, as long as you said, it doesn't go far enough. But another thing I want to mention, too, is that in Ontario, I don't think a lot of people know this. This is already a policy that parents do not have to be notified when their children socially transition in schools. This is something that's coming up in New Brunswick because Blaine Higgs is reversing a policy that was kind of quietly passed, but this is already a policy in a lot of different provinces, including Ontario. Yeah, and, and you've, uh, through right now, launched a petition to basically stand with Blaine Higgs, but but more uh, about the mechanisms being used here is that he's actually facing a calls for a leadership review. So I, I can't stress enough that there are parents that, you know, again, it's hard to find an issue in politics that is as unifying as this, but somehow it hasn't unified the PC party in New Brunswick. Yeah. And I mean, you know, petitions are good to show solidarity, but the, you know, specific reason why we, we use our petition is so that we can build our uh, supporter base so that when a leadership review does come, we will actively sell memberships and support that politician that is speaking out. So in this case, Blaine Higgs. So not only will we show, you know, solidarity through a petition, but we'll also use that to actually effectively give him the votes that he needs to win. So just in, in the bigger context here, I mean, we, we have this, I'll say a coalition. I mean, it's a, a very thin coalition between, uh, you know, some transgender folks, like you mentioned, between Muslim Canadians, Christian Canadians. I think in general, just a lot of parents that are, are not particularly religious or political. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think this is kind of a, a one-time deal that, you know, when it comes to what kids are being taught in schools, everyone can get together. But the second you deviate from that issue, everyone kind of goes back into their corners again? No, I do think that it will unify a lot of people 
and it will start with the gender ideology issue, but I think people are a lot more unified on social issues in general. And culture wars are facing different parts of the world, and they're coming to Canada. They already are here. And a lot of conservative politicians are, uh, you know, reticent to talk about these issues, but they are here and people care about them. And so, you know, I think that in order to win, to motivate the base, to win f future elections, there will have to be a solid opposition taking a stand on these issues, taking a stand with parents, taking a stand with uh, people of all different faith backgrounds, and uh, really pro protecting um, family values in Canada because the, the, our children are being targeted. I mean, just in Manitoba, um, recently in, um, in a city in Manitoba, they were putting in different really sexually explicit books in the library and they actually had to change one of their school board meetings from the school board to a gymnasium because so many people are pouring in um, because this was an issue that they cared about you can see these rallies happening in uh, ottawa and london um in different part in calgary where people of all different faith or non-faith communities are coming together and they're growing bigger and bigger and bigger and the more it's similar to the COVID issue i feel like because the more that trudeau tries to make an enemy of Canadians like he did with the COVID issue, like you're a fringe minority when that's clearly not the case, the more people are going to rise up. So in a sense, the more, you know, these teachers in Edmonton say your ideology doesn't, you don't belong in Canada to these Muslim students or Trudeau says, oh, this is a, a far right Americanization of the issue, the more people are going to stand up and I'm glad to see it. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, when you have like, let's say a, a Catholic and a Calvinist and a Wesleyan Armenian in a room, they can all find no shortage of things to yell at each other about and disagree about. But when you talk about sort of core values issues and, and core moral issues, they're all going to be in agreement on 99.9% .9 of things. Same as if you extend the room and throw a Sikh in there and a Hindu guy and a Muslim and a, a Jew. And again, they, they can disagree with lots on Indian politics, on Middle Eastern politics, but on, on the these core values and moral issues, they'll agree on things. And that divide and conquer thing that we see from the media and from the government is, is such an important tool to take note of here. Because anytime abortion, for example, comes up in an election, uh, the media and Justin Trudeau's team will all make it seem like there is a much broader consensus around their side on this mm -hmm. than actually exists in Canadian society. E even if people in Canada will disagree on, well, you know, rape and incest or third trimester, second. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the majority of Canadians is on a different side than the liberal government is on this. Yeah. And, you know, to use Trudeau's words, it's often the fringe minority that have yeah. the the views of Trudeau, like less than 10% of, of Canadians, you know, 18% of Canadians want, uh, you know, don't want children to be able to secretly socially transition. What I find interesting about this whole uh, situation is that, you know, the LGBT community originally started to say, you know, we we want equality. We just want to be treated like everyone else and be left alone. And it's now become, you know, in, in Toronto, they want to force kids to go to Drag Queen Story Hour in their schools without being able to opt out. So now it's become you have to do this and there's no way out. And ultimately what the other side is saying is we just want to raise our kids. We just want them to go to the school and be left alone. We don't want different views being pushed down our throat. Like for example, what happened in uh, Regina with Planned Parenthood, they get into the schools, uh, they do their presentation on 
God knows what. Um, and then a 14-year-old leaves with a, a, car, a stack of cards, which has the ABC alphabet of sexuality. And some of the terms are about uh, urinating and defecating on your partner and being sexually attracted to a television without, this isn't even a joke. This is teaching kids about these really weird um, kinks that are, that Planned Parenthood say are legitimate. So Ultimately, as parents, as Canadians, we just want to send our kids to school. Uh, we want to be able to have the freedom to teach them whatever we want to teach them when it comes to our faith. And we don't want things being shoved down our throat. And I think that's they're pushing the envelope way too far by targeting kids and, and refraining from being able to opt out. And that's why you're seeing this backlash right now. Very well said. Right now, co-founder Alyssa Galob. Always good to talk to you, Alyssa. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, that was Alyssa Golob. You can watch the uh, great work that Right Now is putting out at itstartsrightnow.ca. And when I mentioned the the mismatch on this issue between what, on one hand, the government media uh, class tells you people think and what real people think, uh, we should sometimes see Justin Trudeau having to be a little bit humbled. He was speaking in Halifax the other day at the North American Indigenous Games, which uh, I'll be perfectly frank, I'd never heard of until today but they do all sorts of games that are steeped in indigenous tradition uh, things like canoeing and lacrosse and a number of other sports and sporting events and Justin Trudeau was the guy giving the kickoff speech and didn't exactly get a warm reception I wonder if all of those kind indigenous folks have been co-opted by the American right as well. After all, anyone else who criticizes Justin Trudeau is just an American far-right operative. Now, again, I'm not sure I would agree with everyone in that room on any number of issues politically. I don't know if they're booing him over lack of clean drinking water on reserves in Canada. Maybe they're booing him because he has kept the racist Indian Act in place. Maybe they're booing him because they just don't like him. I don't know. And it doesn't particularly matter to me. But as I said on Daily Brief this morning with Cosman Georgia, it is interesting when groups that the Liberal government has tried to claim a monopoly over, like Indigenous people, like racial minorities and religious minorities, when all of those folks are booing Trudeau, it makes you wonder if this is a political project that is nowhere near as popular as it thinks, and certainly one that is in decline. Uh, this is exactly what it is that we have been talking about for many months on this show. And I mean, I've said you should never underestimate Justin Trudeau. The guy literally won an election when he was found to have been parading for most of his adult life in blackface. I mean, Katie Telford, his chief of staff the other day, had tweeted about, you know, the bigotry of conservatives. And I just, I should have just pulled the tweet to put in the show today, but I just took the picture of uh, one of the many pictures of Justin Trudeau in blackface and just put the caption, day oh. After all, that was one of his uh, go-to party songs. So anytime uh, the liberals accuse someone of being racist, we should literally just hold up the picture and go, Dayo, 
Me say day, oh, daylight come and Trudeau comes home. That's what we should, that was what I was doing on the Mark Stein cruise, although not Deo. I, was, I wasn't doing like the Trudeau version of party entertaining because how dare these people lecture everyone else on racism that doesn't exist when their leader has legitimately done a bona fide example of racism through most of his adult life. So many times he can't even remember. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Gleb Lysak of the C2C Journal in just a few moments time here. Uh, but I just want to talk about uh, this in the context here because he put forward a great essay in C2C Journal in which he talked about a simple meat and potato recipe for making a pandemic. And he talks about this in, in basically two main uh, pieces of detail. One is the reliance on PCR tests. Do you remember PCR tests? They were all the rage through uh, 2020 and 2021 and kind of into 2022 as well. You used to have to do one if you wanted to get back into your own country. And also the over-reporting of COVID death numbers. Both of these things were crucial pieces of evidence that the government relied on in explaining just how dangerous and dire things were. And these things ultimately became the uh, cornerstones of the pandemic narrative that really carried much of the last three years. So it was a very thoughtful piece. And as I've said on the show, it's a bit challenging sometimes when we had to live through this to want to stay in this terrain for so long. But I also believe there is, generally speaking, a sense of justice that people need. A lot of folks are not prepared just to live and let live and offer that uh, so-called pandemic amnesty. I saw a video from some ostensibly right-of-center commentator uh, today giving an apology for comments he made about unvaccinated people, for example, earlier in the pandemic. And I, I watched this apology video, and I was, it was, but it offered no sense of why it was wrong and no sense of why why he believed what he believed and what changed. Now, I'm a big believer that if someone is going to go through an evolution in how they think and how they approach an issue, we should encourage it and we should welcome it, but you've got to show your work and you've got to explain what it is that has actually changed as opposed to just demanding forgiveness because you realize that whatever view you had a year ago or five minutes ago is no longer in vogue with the audience that you have now. And I think that's the key thing here whenever anyone's talking about the idea of pandemic amnesty. So we'll talk about this in the context of this essay here with uh, Gleb Light who is a C2C contributor and also a researcher and IT professional. Gleb, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. Andrew. So, I mean, you've actually distilled a very complex concept into fairly simple terms here, but am I understanding your point correctly that, that you feel the two sort of big data issues that we saw here came down to the PCR tests and the related but also distinct phenomenon of the death counts? Yeah, that's pretty much was the idea, right? Um, the COVID waters were very, very murky, and uh, there are all, all kinds of things that come into equation. The uh, government response, the officials, uh, the media, uh, hospitalizations, the uh, bands, uh, hospital band utilization and stuff like that. So, so many things. So to me, it was important to distill this to those uh, key concepts that pretty much drove everything else 
right? So we had cases and we had deaths. Cases would uh, estimate the scale of that, uh, let's call it a disaster, right? Uh, and the deaths would estimate the severity. Everything else was kind of in between or supported by all those numbers. So that's why I wanted to uh, take all those side components out of the equation and just plug the major numbers in and uh, present them in a way that not only highlight the aspects of this COVID pandemic, but would also apply to any pandemic going forward. Because ultimately, if we're going to have another one, it will be gauged by the same numbers, cases and deaths. That's it. Yeah, and, and I think both are, are challenging. I mean, originally, cases were the thing that everyone cared about because, you know, cases were the way you'd measure how widespread something was in a, in a community. And at a certain point when I forget which wave it was, I don't know if it was Omicron or, or something, when yeah. we saw cases just completely swell, but deaths continued to be in decline. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of at that time taking anything meaningful of cases when people, myself included, were testing positive despite having zero symptoms of anything. So, I, I mean, that is not a, a meaningful positive result. And, and whether it's that it's a false positive or your case is so mild that you don't even know you have it, to me, is not necessarily relevant there. But people were still trying to make policy on that and saying, well, the high cases mean we need to keep mask mandates in place. We need to keep X, Y, and Z in place. Yeah, it hit uh, the nail on the head. Uh, I, I think it was around uh, January 2022 when uh, Omicron was at its best uh, and uh, the cases were through the roof. And people started wondering, like, why are we really counting those, right? And how are we counting that? And is it the effort and counting that brings up the cases up? Or is it actually the cases themselves or the disease? So it was becoming very apparent and laughable that counting cases, the techniques of counting cases, the demand for cases or forcing everybody to test was what was driving the case numbers. As soon as they stopped counting, cases disappeared. Is your view on the PCR test that it was being used for something that it was never intended to be used for and that the, the issues that you've identified were, were more accidental? Or, or was your view that this was being deliberately used because it would give this number that would then support all of these policies the government wanted to put in? I, I guess the question is, was this, an, was this something that was a byproduct of a bad policy or was this a policy that was designed in your view to be more manipulative? In my personal opinion, and again, I'm not claiming to be the final instance of everything. So everybody can, anybody can read the article and make up their own mind. I'm not trying to draw any conclusions, but since you're asking me personally, I think it was a deliberate mm -hmm. uh, attempt. There's absolutely no way for me how um, a medical, a, science, uh, a scientist or expert in uh, PCR testing, for example, or any the testing of any sort would legitimately authorize PCR to be a clinical diagnostics tool. Judging from that, it's, it was totally inappropriate to use it as a clinical diagnostics tool. You can use PCR and the PCR is a great 
technology, right? That allows you to, let's say, estimate the presence of certain pathogen within a population because it's totally probabilistic. So you can apply it to masses and come up with a probabilistic estimate of how much of that particular pathogen virus or whatever is present within a certain group of population. But when it comes to clinical diagnostic, deciding whether a particular person is sick, it has a disease, it totally fails to do its job because it's a probabilistic tool. It's never been designed for clinical diagnostics. It's, not very, it's uh, the, the very inventor of this technology questioned that, um, not specifically for COVID, but for viruses in general. Hmm. Right. So to me, it's absolutely impossible how a medical, medically knowledgeable person can make a decision to use PCR for clinical diagnostics, which inevitably follows that it was a deliberate attempt to exaggerate cases through misuse of the PCR. And I said at the beginning, when we look at cases and, and deaths, that the, the two are, are different, but they're very related because uh, yeah. the case, the, the PCR testing, and, you know, for example, you couldn't go to a hospital with a broken leg without getting a COVID test meant that all of a sudden people that never would have been tested on their own were getting logged as COVID hospitalizations. And if something happened where you died, we know that there was this issue of people dying with COVID versus of COVID, which messed with the numbers. And I mean, you had some uh, stories in the US where someone, you know, went in with a motorcycle accident that killed them and they were logged as a COVID death because they happen to have COVID or something like that. And, and you had government say, oh, you know, we're trying to do our best to, to filter these cases out. But the two really are interconnected in the sense that someone gets a PCR test, uh, someone is a COVID case, someone dies of something, all of a sudden the natural instinct is to log them as a COVID death regardless of what killed them. Yeah, uh, and I can even share my personal story and I, I'm sure many people would probably know someone um, with whom something similar happened. So my wife's aunt in Moscow, Russia, right? I'm not talking about Canada anymore. I just, it, it, because it's been, it's been pretty much all over the world in Moscow. So my, my, my wife's aunt, she was very um, un, un, unhealthy individual with uh, tons of various diseases. Um, she was, she had difficulties moving around the home, the home, and um, pretty much she needed help from someone else. Like she could not be on her by herself. So finally, she she got to the point where she had to be brought into the hospital in 2020 uh, for something completely different, not not COVID at all. Right? She had enough other problems to be worried about. So. After about a week or two, I don't remember exactly, but she was finally diagnosed with COVID. <laughs> uh, basically, the test came up positive, from which point she got moved from this uh, uh, ward, whatever she was in, into the COVID ward, and she died there. And I handled the story, right? Wow. Um, yeah, I have I have other other um, personal stories to share, but this is just an example of what was happening. In hospitals, people were tested basically daily in 2020, 2021 for COVID. Because of the, the PCR test nature, obviously, sooner or later, it would give you a positive result, which triggers 
moving the person to a different ward where they would be treated uh, from from COVID or get no treatment at all as, as in the initial stages of disease. Uh, that was the advice. Don't do anything pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to being treated from what they suffered from. So it was completely mistreatment of the people that got them killed in those COVID wards. I'm not talking about COVID treatment. I don't want to go in that area yet, but that's pretty much the very, very common scenario. You get moved to the COVID ward, you know, you're not, you're, you're mistreated and you die. And the death mm-hmm. certificate says you died from COVID. Well, because the PCR test was positive. Well, sir, I mean, it's certainly a, a simple and logical concept you've put forward here, Gleb. You know, uh, cases plus deaths equals the uh, story of the pandemic. But if each of those premises is fraught with its own uh, data challenges, then we, we are seeing exactly what you've described here and, and what you go into more detail in, in your uh, essay in C2C Journal, making a pandemic a simple meat and potato recipe. And again, we've only really scratched the surface here, but I would encourage people to read that for themselves. Gleb Lysik, thank you so much for coming on. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. Have a good day. All right, you too, Gleb. And let me just add one additional component to this. Uh, The PCR test, people made an absolute fortune off of those. I I talked about uh, Switch Health a while ago, which was this company that uh, came up and it is basically one of the most... I'm, I don't want to get sued here, but it's like people should look into just what Switch Health did, a company that basically uh, has no utility now, but had gone from being non-existent to being the contractor that you had to go through if you were landing in Canada uh, because you had to do this entry test, uh, a company that then all of a sudden started doing these DIY COVID tests that you could buy for, I think, like 150 bucks each uh, as a partnership that was helped by the former C- CEO of Air Canada, and then promoted by Air Canada. Um, and But in general, I mean, I, I, did, I do some work with a, a client that's not true north in the United States. So I ended up uh, going across the border a couple times when the border was closed because I, I had uh, a working reason to be there. And even so, I had to do a COVID test to get back into my own country. And the thing is, if you had no medical need for it, you'd need to pay for these COVID tests. And because Canada had this rule where the test had to be done in less than 72 hours before when you went to the border, uh, you would need to pay for these expedited tests. So you'd spend like $200 uh, US, $250 US to get a COVID test. In Canada, labs were charging very similar amounts if you wanted results in. So people were making a fortune off this and turning back positives in some cases for people that had no idea there was anything wrong with them except for a PCR test telling them when the only reason they got the test was for some travel related reason or because they were trying to go visit grandma in a long-term care home. No one's sick, but all of a sudden someone has made money off this test, which tells you you're positive. And if you need a test to tell you you're sick with something, you're not actually sick. So the case count was incredibly flawed from the get-go. Now, where I I go from here, I don't know, because obviously if you are going to have a a pandemic or you are going to have a virus, yes, you need to test people. And yes, you need to log deaths. But when the data collection process has become politicized and I would argue weaponized, you need to do what Gleb Lysik was doing here and, and take a bit of a retrospective on this and have a more honest accounting. And it would be nicer if we could have had this much sooner 
than now. That does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.